Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats, or you can chat. Subscribe to our feed, please. New episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in most Mondays or right there at nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab, find us, find all the other fine National Review podcasts. And as always, we ask you to uh, listen, enjoy, share, please, and leave reviews as well. This is the program in which we speak with people from the world of politics, covering politics, analyzing politics, uh, working in politics, uh, but not about anything political whatsoever. It's Political Beats, where we talk about music and our guest's favorite band, or most interesting band sometimes. It's not always favorite, I've, I've, I've realized. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter, at Scott Bertram. Standing by, as always, my co-host, Jeff Blair. Jeff. You know, Scott, I woke up this morning with a ghostly refrain coursing through my head. The voice, as it haunted me like a, a wraith, a spirit in the night, said to me, I want my MTV. I want my, I want my MTV. So then I went to MTV and I turned it on and I found out much to my dismay <laughs> that, um, well, there's the only thing you can find there are reality TV shows these days. That's Boy. right. Was, that's, was, that's a great way to make you feel like you're uh, 37 years old. Was there a pregnant teen on the show you were watching today? Uh, it may have been, or there may have been something about, I don't know, maybe the Jersey Shore. <laughs> Follow Jeff on Twitter as well, at Esoteric CD. And we uh, bring you our guest this week. She is the president of the Lafayette Company. Also, communications director, chief spokesperson for presidential campaign, members of Congress, several political organizations. You might have seen her writing also at National Review or in Forbes. You can find her on Twitter at Ellen Carmichael, which also happens to be her name. She's Ellen Carmichael. Ellen, welcome on to Political Beats. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. We appreciate your time and willingness to spend a little time with us and, and nerd out on some music. Before we get to the, the band you've chosen to discuss today, Ellen, we, uh, we give the floor to you. Uh, we'd like to find out a little bit more about our guests. We try to stay away from, you know, policies, but we do want to know how you got involved in the whole political ecosystem. So um, I graduated from LSU, and while I was there, um, I had a variety of political internships in school um, at Americans for Tax Reform in D.C., working on campaigns in Louisiana, um, worked on some congressional campaigns, a couple president, uh, one presidential, thankfully only one presidential campaign, um, and then worked for two members of Congress before hanging my own shingle, the Lafayette Company, um, where I do just general political communications work press releases, to press conferences, to speeches, to messaging strategy, anything that involves the intersection of politics and communication. Um, I've written some under my own name, um, places like you mentioned, National Review uh, and Forbes and other places. Um, but yeah, I mean, my real passion <laughs> is music, but <laughs> unfortunately, music doesn't play the bills if you can't sing or play an instrument. So I'm glad to have the opportunity to chat with you about my favorite band, which is Dire Straits. 
Dire Straits Indeed, that's uh, the band we're tackling today, just recently inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if that means much to uh, to you out there. But, man, you look back at at, uh, at, at their success through the years, and, they, man, they sold a ton of albums, and especially, uh, you know, you look at worldwide album totals for Brothers at Arms and, and even uh, uh, the follow-up sold just a ton of copies around the world. And Mark Knopfler's got on to a more success, not more successful, but a successful career in, uh, in a solo career and also doing work with movies uh, movie soundtracks and movie scoring these guys had one of the more iconic videos as jeff referenced a little bit earlier in mtv history they've been parodied by weird al yankovic which really is you know the height you know you've made it when weird al does something with one of your songs uh and uh, uh formed back in 1977 and, and made it all the way through i think the official breakup was like 1994 or five though they were Pretty much done as a creative unit by that point, for sure. And Mark Knopfler was on to other things. We, uh, though, turn the t- uh, turn the uh, floor again to uh, Ellen to tell us a little bit more about, well, why you love Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler, how you got into them, and why anyone else around here should care about Dire Straits. Ellen? So, I was born in 1987. I'm um, holding on to that fact that I'm just still 30 right now, and Dire Straits was at their heyday when I was born um, and was sort of the soundtrack to my childhood in a lot of senses because when everybody else was listening to the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and all those great 90s groups, my parents would never have allowed me to listen to my own musical choices in the car on our long cross-country road trips. And instead, I had to listen to whatever my parents wanted to listen to. In this case, it was Dire Straits. In particular, my dad... um, who grew up with two brothers and his dad was an only child. So he didn't have a ton of uh, female influences in his life. And his firstborn child was a daughter. And so he didn't really know, I imagine, how to relate to this young girl, except through music and sports. And I happen to like both of those things. Um, and so my fondest memories as a child are, are my dad putting on Dire Straits records, particular Brothers in Arms, if they just absolutely iconic cover of that album um and listening to my dad sing um and whistle to walk of life and um and and sing money for nothing and all those great songs they were just huge parts of my childhood and now as an adult and someone with i hope more sophisticated musical taste than when i was in middle school i've come to appreciate uh the tremendous talent and intellect that went into developing dire straits Um, I understand now why my parents love it so much and why my dad in particular loved it so much. I think Mark Knopfler combined this just quintessential English wit and intellect and the cultural illusions and just beautiful writing that he developed from being a journalist with an unmistakable and undeniable uh, guitar playing ability. I mean, when you hear Mark Knopfler, even today, you know it's him. Mm -hmm. Um, Such a distinct sound to him. For me, as someone who loves to read and who loves to write, 
um, Mark Knopfler sort of my ideal musician because you can tell, you know, he's a good songwriter because he's a big reader. Um, and that really comes through in his music. I mean, they sold more than 100 million albums. And I think I read that they they had uh, they were on the UK charts for 1100 weeks, <laughs> the highest in uh, British musical counting history, if you will. Um, it's it's. It's pretty remarkable that somebody who combined all these beautiful historical references and cultural illusions could in the 80s and, and early 90s really make that into a mainstream digestible product to people. Um, and, and on top of that, I think Dire Straits, especially Knopfler, has such a sense of place. You look at all these different right. uh, these different songs and these could be places like for instance planet of new orleans um he's not i'm from this area <laughs> i'm from louisiana this song rings true to me even though mark knopfler is from northeast england um and that again goes back to him being a, a great reader and a great writer and you know pairing that with beautiful music and this un, undeniably beautiful guitar playing you know for me uh, dire straits is a band that is inextricably associated with like some very deep and very powerful childhood memories. And when I say childhood, I mean like early childhood. I'm talking about when I'm like five, six, seven, eight years old, you know, the real, my real youth. Um, and for me, it, it is forever tied up uh, with my father. Um, my dad, of course. Uh, hi, dad. I don't know if you're listening to this episode, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, Brothers in Arms, as Alan mentioned, was just a, a massive, massive album. Every, it was number one in America. It was number one everywhere. So everyone had a copy of it. We had a CD of it, too. It was, it was part of the core of you know, my dad's original CD collection as opposed to his record collection. And I will never forget not only listening to all the hit singles. You know, everybody heard Walk of Life. Everybody heard So Far Away. You know, Money for Nothing with that legendary music video uh but and this is going to be a strange little thing to point out this is actually associated with one of the first moments of uh, discomfort in my life emotional discomfort because you know there's something as a young kid that, that that will always weird you out is is that when you see your parents getting emotional uh when you see like you know you're you're you know you expect your mom to like you know she's emotional she'll shed a tear but it's something different when you see your dad cry Okay, and I'll never forget, you know, just up late at night listening to music, and he put on the the last song on Brothers in Arms, the title track, mm -hmm. Brothers in Arms, and you know we just listened through it, and you know they get get to that last verse where he, now the sun's gone to hell and the moon's riding high, let me bid you farewell. Every man has to die, but it's written in the starlight, and every line on your palm, we are fools to make war on our brothers in arms, and I just noticed, and my dad was actually crying. He was shedding tears at this song. It was so moving. It was so powerful. Listening also not just to the the, the lyrics, but also to Mark Knopfler's amazing guitar playing. Um, that it, it it really kind of overpowered him emotionally. And I remember feeling both. I, I recognized the significance of it, but I also felt discomfort because I was like, you don't ever want to see you don't want to see your dad showing vulnerability. You're like, oh no, oh no. Um, that has stuck with me forever. And you know, you come back later in life and you listen to that song, listen to that entire album, and you understand. I understand now why it is my dad felt that way, what it is that moved him about that, how it affected him, and it affects me too. Um, 
So Brothers in Arms, that entire album, has always had a very special place in my heart and a very personal place in my heart just because of that experience that I had with it. Beyond that, uh, I will say that uh, Dire Straits, uh, for very long, um, for a very long time in my life, was really just that Brothers in Arms album plus Sultan's a Swing, which, of course, you heard on the radio. And everything else was just a gigantic question mark. You go to college and that cute girl that you're uh, hitting on uh, really loves Romeo and Juliet. So you get a copy of Making Movies. And then later on, you explore, you know, some of their, their less, you know, trodden paths, like not only Mark Knopfler's um, soundtrack to Local Hero, which I really like, by the way, um, but also those earlier and less well-regarded albums or less praised talked about albums like um you know communique or um uh you know love over gold uh, then you end up finding out that Knopfler and dire straits as a whole are a band that i've, I've never you know ranked in my my first order of great artists um simply because i think some of the early material is is too generic but when they hit their stride and they hit their stride uh, i think on making movies uh Knopfler discovered a form of music making that was in a way unlike anything else that anybody else was making at that time it was a weird form of guitar and keyboard based prog rock that fused the best elements of say bruce springsteen and bob dylan together <laughs> into a really kind of sonically ambitious format and a very well-produced format as well. And it's been fun kind of coming back to these albums and, and, and hearing some of them for the first time, as a matter of fact, and really learning to appreciate what a craftsman he was and what a great storyteller he was in particular. You know, we'll get to songs like, you know, basically the entire Love Over Gold album. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how I really, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of Telegraph Road and Private Investigations and things like that but but as ellen points out you know he, he he writes like a man who has read a lot and it really shines through on his lyrics and not just his lyrics but on the way he puts music together and the story of dire straits begins uh with a divorce which would be reflected in some of the uh songs on the on the very first album but mark knopfler is uh is uh, is, is single he moves in with his brother david knopfler and uh, you know, they pretty much decide to start things up. They've got John Ilsley on bass, Pick Withers on drums, and decide to make something happen. But uh, Muddy Tights, they have to borrow uh, money to make their demo. That's where the name of the band comes from. Their financial dire straits when it's trying to get things started with the band. They borrowed money for a, a, a five-track demo, put it together, and... Uh, it had one radio host take a take a liking to uh, to the music. Two months later, basically a record contract. So this is not a band with a giant backstory. I mean, Mark Knopfler played in a in a in a band before Dire Straits, but these guys were not uh, you know spending six years in the wilderness playing uh, clubs trying to trying to get get going. They had their demo. They found a record contract, and they found almost instant success with a song that Jeff referenced and uh, virtually everyone listening to. the podcast i'm sure is aware of called sultans of swing from that very first album dire straits and uh this to me is is an excellent uh, debut album there are, are a few places where i think th it, it lulls a bit but by and large it's an excellent debut i i i was struck mostly uh, because i've been a dire straits fan but not a fanatic right there's a, a line there i suppose 
listening to this first album, how how deep the appreciation and I don't want to say obsession, perhaps, but you know the the Bob Dylan uh, obsession that Mark Knopfler has. Man, does it shine through on a lot of tracks on this debut album, both in terms of style, vocal delivery, all those things. Uh, Down to the Waterline, the very first track on the album opens with like this uh, this foghorn sound, and the band comes in about 35, 40 seconds after the fact uh, in full force. And it's it's pretty much classic Dire Straits in the sound, at least from these first couple of albums. You know, that sound of, of Mark Knopfler's very distinctive guitar playing, the finger-picking, a very quick groove, and, and a tight song down to the waterline. Um, Water of Love, I think, was released as a single off this album. Very clean production to these songs. Muff Winwood, who is uh, Steve Winwood's brother, did the producing on uh, on these songs on, on Dire Straits. Uh, there's even some steel guitar on Water of Love. I actually compare this a bit to uh, uh, to like the Eagles' mid '70s album tracks. You know, the one track that Bernie Bernie Layden got to sing, or Randy Meisner perhaps sang. Uh, that's what Water of Love sounds like to me in a song about unhappy relationships, where Mark Knopfler's divorce and some of the stories around there come through. Turn it over to, uh, to, to to Ellen, I suppose, to kind of take it from here. There's a few other songs I might want, want to mention later, and certainly we'll address Sultan's a Swing, but I, I think this is a, you know, a classic Dire Straits sound and a very good first album. Yeah, I agree. Um, you mentioned Down to the Waterline, which is the intro track for the album, and it's one of my favorites, one of my favorite Dire Straits songs. It's just emblematic of a lot of the work, really, the this, this strong bluesy guitar but also just that distinct mark knopfler sound the lyrics are about his life in a sense um growing up in and particularly when he was in high school and about his high school girlfriend i think the girl that he went on to marry um going by the river tyne which is actually a, a body of water that appears in a bunch of his songs including his later works um but it's just about two high school kids running around and kissing and trying not to get caught by the police and um it's it just it's just a really sweet song. And even though it's kind of this racy topic, it's told in a way that's, that's sort of modest. Um, and the music reflects that. And even though, like I said, there's a fantastic guitar playing, there's sort of this stillness to it, especially at the beginning that you describe, um, that I just think really makes it a beautiful piece. And it's, I think one of the, uh, under celebrated dire straits works and one of my favorite dire street songs. Comes a coaster fast and silent in the night. Over my shoulder, all you can see are the pilots. No money in a jacket. 
Sultans of Swing, that was their big hit, and it was an immediate hit, and it played well to American audiences, um, and it really was the reason that they were, I think, commercially successful to the degree that they were in the United States was because they led with Sultans of Swing, which just really spoke to the kind of music that we grow up with in the United States, and the kind of music that captivated a lot of British rockers, people like Eric Clapton, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that he was really influenced by by B.B. King and other American blues musicians, and you can kind of sense that. Um, another great song is, I love Southbound Again. That's just a song that really reminds me of being in the car with my dad. Um, it, it's just a neat tune. I mean, there's so much, I think one thing I like about Dire Straits in general, and I think this is something that they get an un- I think Mark Knopfler gives himself an unfair rap and he says that some of his stuff started to sound the same but I think there's just a lot of diversity in the songs on the first album um, and, and like I said Sultans of Swing Down to the Waterline Southbound Again those are some great songs that, you, that sort of set the tone for future Dire Straits works Okay, so, you know, Sultans of Swing, right? I was just actually uh, making this observation um, the other night uh, on Twitter, of all things. And I said, like, I've always been amused by what I... It's not really intended as a pun, but to American listeners, it certainly plays as a pun, as Mm. a joke. uh, When Knopfler sings, you know, way on down south, (laughs) way on down south in London town. Because, you know, this is a blues-based song. It sounds like it's, you know, the old Sultans of Swing. Like, yeah, it's going to Dixieland and New Orleans or the Delta or something like that. But no, 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 no. This is a song about the division between the North and the South in the United Kingdom, which brings me actually to a point where I think I, I almost want to disagree a little bit with what Scott said earlier about how there isn't too much you know, biography to cover about Dire Straits. So there is one really important thing that you need to know about this band and about Mark Knopfler is that they come from the north. They come from northern England. In fact, Knopfler, I believe, was born in Scotland, yeah. although he was raised in um, over the border in England proper, I think in Newcastle or something like that. Um, this is a northern band He's a northern man with northern attitudes. And then one other thing that you know, people who aren't real obsessive students of, say, British musical subcultures, the way I might be, uh, don't necessarily realize about uh, England and the United Kingdom in this era is that there was a very vibrant subgenre called Northern Soul uh that was really booming in the late 70s and the early 80s uh that encompassed uh, a whole host of bands it was almost a a revivalist movement that was a rejection of what we think of now as sort of we think of like what's the classic you know english sound of the late 70s it's punk Mm -hmm. it's post-punk those were largely southern concepts those were largely out of london or like you know xtc out of swindon which is another southern england you know art rock very weird and twitchy kind of a thing up north the working class north the miners you know the laborers the manufacturers uh they were very much into a more bluesy and soul sort of sound they had loved country music there you know when elvis costello decided to go country where did he go he, he went to aberdeen to play country concerts where all these you know these mill workers would come out after their <laughs> after their day jobs and you know get drunk and howl at them to play charlie Patton songs so this is a very almost difficult for us to understand subculture now uh, that the north in England is like the south in America. Mm. 
and the South in America is like the North in England. So when you understand why does Dire Straits seem so sort of plucked completely out of time, and unlike every other band uh, that made it big in the United Kingdom from its era, you got to know that. You got to know it's because they came from Scotland and from the north of the United Kingdom. They they aren't a punk band from the south. You know, you know, Knopfler was a guy who was raised on blues licks and blues chops and, you know, the eternal verities of, you know, that blues and country and western style guitar. And, of course, he ended up developing it into a much different thing. But that explains almost everything you need to know about the first album and the way they evolved. Now, as for that, you're going to say, Alan? No, and I was going to agree with you on the, on the historical importance of that because, um, and we'll go into this, I'm sure, in later albums from Dire Straits, but there was a real, there was a real crisis with the post-industrialization, if you will, in the northern part of the of the United Kingdom. Um, there were a lot of people, especially in the Thatcher years, and that was something a big theme that he took on from a political point of view. But also his own his own upbringing. I mean, his father was a Hungarian Jew who was a socialist who who was thrown in jail for um, handing out political pamphlets. Um, and he so there's a sense I think for a variety of different factors, the, the regional factor, um, but also just Knopfler never really cared about the glitz and glamour of rock and roll. And he goes on to mock it in almost all of his music subsequently. Hmm. Um, and so it is, it is regional and it is a historical reason why, you know, he's not interested in this punk movement right. underground. I mean, London still has an underground scene for music. It's a big part of the London identity, but he is not a, a Londoner. He's from the Northeast part of the UK and his experiences reflect that and the music reflects that could anything be more out of step with like magazine the fall (laughs) wire joy division than you know sultans of swing you know like you know ain't got time for no trumpet playing band that ain't what he thinks of as rock and roll i mean trumpet playing bands are a little bit too out there for the guy in sultans of swing (laughs) (laughs) so we're talking about somebody who has a profoundly and unapologetically conservative point of view when it comes to musical stuff and i think for better or for worse and i would argue actually for worse it shows up on these first two albums. Now, I don't want to you know, be a downer here, but my problem with the first two Dire Straits albums uh, is that what you cannot argue against, which was unimpeachable, is Knopfler's guitar playing and his guitar tone. He is – it's almost a miracle that he just emerged from – complete obscurity to have this beautiful style that immediately seems iconic it seems like his own there's just nobody who sounds like mark knopfler there's nobody who plays the instrument the way he gets the sound out of that instrument the way he does but also plays in the style puts the notes together the way mark knopfler does he has a unique style and that is the best thing about these first two albums but in terms of the compositions i don't know i have to say i find a lot of this to be a little bit too generic uh when i went back and i listened to these albums again just the you know over the last week and i thought my i found myself thinking like well okay sultan's a swing that's sort of the benchmark that you have because it's such an iconic song and the best moments on these two albums you know things that i like like water of love and setting me up they're okay songs they just sound like slightly less 
interesting variations on that guitar approach that you hear on Sultans of Swing. I think the one exception on this first album is Wild West End, yeah. which I think is a really good song. And it is because why is it? Because it's different. It's not just, you know, a chugling little boogie kind of a song. It, it, he goes in a very different direction with that melodically. And so that is, to me, the other song on this first album, which I know that so many other people out there treat as classics. So I recognize I'm getting on the, the bad side <laughs> of, a, of a bunch of our listeners by saying this. But, you know, the, this first album, then Communique coming up, they don't really stand out that much to me. Scott, I don't know. I, I do like this first one quite a bit. You mentioned uh, Wild, uh, Wild West End, which I, I agree is one of the best songs on the album. And it's such a laid back, comfortable track to the point where Knopfler's chuckling along in the lyrics just before the first uh, chorus. And uh, it's kind of a sing-along chorus to it, too, the walking in the Wild West End uh, multiple times in, in, in the chorus. Uh, setting me up, which um, uh, Ellen mentioned Eric Clapton. I think there's a, a lot of Eric Clapton influence on setting me up, especially the stuff he was doing yeah. in that mid-'70s, late-'70s uh, era. Uh, there's that you know real growling tone of his voice in that, uh, in that tune, kind of a rockabilly country style almost but with a kind of blues country shuffle beat to it. It sounds a lot like what Clapton was doing at the time. And I just want to spend another extra second on Sultans of Swing because it is one of those songs, I mean, Hotel California by the Eagles, you know, pick your favorite classic rock song that's been beaten to death on, on the local radio station. I can listen to Sultans, and, Sultans of Swing over and over again and still enjoy it and still appreciate it, if not just for that unbelievable guitar solo from Knopfler, right. the, the kind of right. solo that you know essays are written about how great this 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 guitar solo is. It, it introduces people very early to that narrative kind of storytelling style that Knopfler would write. Those lyrics, um, I think, owing a lot to to uh, it, it's a real story. I mean, he was at a, a a bar and this band was playing and they had this this you know uh, kind of majestic title were the sultans of swing but no one was there and right. no one was listening so it comes from a a, a real life uh, example it it really is a phenomenal song and it, it just it's put, the arpeggiation yeah. on that guitar solo that's just so beautiful because it's technically uh, very dexterous mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel like it's a flashy moment it just feels like it's it emerges properly and emotionally from the guitar phrasing that he was trying to do. It suits the song so perfectly. Like, yes, now we are the Sultans of Swing and we are going to swing for you. Behold. <laughs> I don't know uh, how somebody who had never done this before could come up with such an unmannered and beautifully, you know, fitting guitar solo for their first big hit, but Knopfler did. <laughs> We are the Sultans. We are the
it might not have even been included in, in, in maybe his planning for the song. I watched a documentary about him and he said um, that he was just kind of riffing when they recorded it. But then he soon figured out that if you include it on the recording, you have to play it when you play live. Otherwise, <laughs> it's not Sultans of Swing. Um, right. so it, it's a, sort of a funny thing. It was it's probably the most iconic part of the song. And yet it was it was by a happy accident. Yeah worked out okay it worked out so well in fact that uh record label sent them back in the studio give us something new churn something out nine months after dire straits is released you have the follow-up communique and uh, I, I think there's pretty much a uh, consensus feel that this is the weakest or at least one of the weakest i mean there's only six proper albums i suppose but uh, the criticisms that you might have of, of the Dire Straits album, which Jeff delineated, and I agree, you know, on the down points, are are, are magnified on Communique for the for the most part. Um, you've got, I think, one standout track here, which is in the in in the mold of Sultans of Swing, and it's a song called Lady Writer. And I am such a big fan of this song. That, that, that brilliant guitar progression that starts the song. Uh, there is a uh, at the end another you know minute long almost uh, Knopfler play out finger picking style once again. Love the uh, the pre chorus. That just the way her hair fell down around her face. Just the way that her hair fell down around her face. And I recall my fall from vocals too in places which Dire Straits doesn't use all that often and I also quickly tell a quick story I will never forget the length of Dire Straits Lady Rider my very first radio internship one of my jobs was to find uh, songs that would fit you know if, if you didn't sell all your commercials you'd have to fill with uh, with a song and so that we, I was at a station where they didn't sell all their commercials, which uh, certainly uh, you'd like to do that. And so my job was to find songs that fit the length of this break exactly. So when they didn't sell commercials, they could play an extra song during the hour. And that length was three and a half minutes. So I went through the catalogs to find all the songs that were like exactly three and a half minutes. You will notice Lady Rider is exactly three and a half minutes. There's a song from Heart. Might be Kick It Out. That's also exactly three and a half. So I'll never forget the exact length of Lady Writer uh, because I know it's three and a half minutes. I had to look it up and put it in the system. It's also a fantastic song, by the way. Uh, where do you think you're going? If I can mention one more song before we go uh, to, to, to the next person. Uh, an acoustic-led song. There is a, a really good... Some of the songwriting here, I think, is more accomplished. The music, musicianship is a little bit sharper. And I think it's kind of... Uh, apparent here um, where it starts with a slower acoustic led uh, track and it sort of morphs into you know about two-thirds of the way through the band enters and the pace picks up and increases it's a well designed song by mark knopfler and it's a little more interesting i think than some of the music not some of the music some of the songwriting i should say on the very first album but then again 
uh, the first album's better because Communicate does not feature a lot of songs that rise to that level. I mean, I don't really have much to say about Communicate except that I listen to it and I think to myself, this is a pleasant and undemanding and undistinguished album. And I think uh, Lady Writer is the best song on the on the album. You you've covered that I think very well. I think maybe Portobello Bell. Yeah. I also like. Yeah. I think that's good. She thinks she's tough. Maybe put me in a corner and I'll say single-handed sailor has something to offer as well. But yeah, for the most part, this feels like uh, the classic sophomore slump album. We talk about this so many so many times on our episodes. You know, this was a genuine sophomore slump where they had put the best of what they had to offer into the first album and then they were just repeating themselves <laughs> and they come up with one or two nice tracks. But again, what you have is that Knopfler-esque guitar which is magnificent, but there's just something unfortunate when you think to yourself, as I do listening to this, that like, well, it's best moments rise to, okay, well, this sounds like, you know, the stepbrother of Sultans of Swing. That means mm, we're not doing anything new here. We're not doing anything different. Um, but it's it's not a bad album. I actually would argue, I don't think Dire Straits made a bad album ever. Uh, they just made albums that were sort of generic and, and not really worth too much time and I think this one is the one that falls most clearly into that category yeah I would agree the lady writer is really the only standout for me in particular because I I joke that I'm a lady writer um, <laughs> <laughs> political consultant who also writes from time to time um, I think from a historical point of view, this is probably where Dire Straits figured out, at least Martin Offer figured out pretty quickly, he didn't really care about being famous and he didn't like the pressures that came with being famous. Um, their first album was just a massive hit and they were putting them on the road for hundreds and hundreds of shows at the time, um, dozens of days in each single city. Um, and in the case, I believe it was at Wembley in London. I mean, they, they were getting worn out pretty quickly and then there was the pressure to go into the studio again and you know, produce another uh, smash hit album. I think this is also where tensions with his brother David started to to mount and where they sort of saw that maybe this would not be a permanent arrangement with the two of them playing together as Dire Straits um, in the future. I just, I actually found out recently and, and as somebody who's a big fan of the documentary about this studio, it was the guys from Muscle Shoals who actually produced uh, Communique, which... Hmm was a bit of a surprise to me. They produced a lot of different stuff, obviously from Alicia Keys to um, Aretha Franklin to Rolling Stones. I mean, everybody. Yeah, Jerry Wexler, he's, he's one of the most famous producers for the entire Atlantic recording label, which of course their, their sole division is based out of, yeah, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Um, so it seemed like a perfect fit for them stylistically, but the music yeah. wasn't there. I mean, along the lines of things that they've done, other other folks like Joe Cocker, um, mm -hmm. who are that that bluesy English, that that you know, like I said, quintessential English blues sound of people like Joe Cocker. It makes sense. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it just, it wasn't as commercially successful as the original Dire Straits album. And it's easy to see why. Um, I mean, it still sold 7 million copies. It, it wasn't a failure by commercial standards, but um, you know, when you think that they've sold a hundred million worldwide, that's a, it shows you about the general performance of the album. And of course that takes us to the moment, which transforms the band, I think forever. Uh, they got, they hire uh, Jimmy Iovine, who was you know famously you know producer for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers for Bruce Springsteen for Patti Smith, uh, he worked on everything from Born to Run to Damn the Torpedoes. He comes in to work with Dire Straits on their third album, and uh, this one doesn't sound, to my mind, almost anything like their first two records, and it's all for the better. The name of it is Making Movies from 1980. Um, I'll just open up the you know festivities here by saying that if it weren't for Le Boys at the end of this album, it could have been the best thing that they had ever done. Uh, as it is, it's damn close. This is, you know, you start listening through their discography and you listen to the first two albums, you think, well, you know, this is just a middling band. It's not great. Then you hit making movies and then suddenly you realize, oh, wow, they're doing some very, very compelling and strange and different things. This is the moment they became great, in my opinion. I agree. This, despite the uh, the final song, is my favorite Dire Straits album. Jimmy Iovine has a ton to do with that. He made their sound uh, more muscular. You know, the drums sound fantastic on this album. They sound like Stan Lynch is playing with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's the same sound that Jimmy Iovine brings. Very muscular sound. He brings in Roy Bitten with him from uh, E Street Band, who played with uh, Springsteen, of course, uh, to play keys on this album. A huge, huge addition for uh, for making movies. This is uh, David Knopfler would leave during the recording of this album and Mark would re-record virtually all of his guitar work, and I think that actually is for the better as well. The first side of this album is virtually flawless. You know, Tunnel of Love, Romeo and Juliet, and Skate Away. Three absolutely classic songs. And my favorite, everyone likes Romeo and Juliet. I think my favorite is still Tunnel of Love. Uh, Knopfler plays this very muscular rhythm guitar through it a song about you know visiting a fairground and you know, going to rides and meeting a girl and all, all those things that happen uh, kind of when you're uh, f- having fun in the summer so to speak uh, great lyrics she took a silver locket she said remember me by this she put her hand in my pocket I got a keepsake and a kiss I love that from, from Mark Knopfler she took off a silver locket she said remember me by this she put her hand in my pocket I got a keepsake and a kiss And an Aurora dust and diesel I stood, I was to walk away I could have caught up with her easy enough But someone must have made me stay And the big wheel keep on turning Neon burning up above It empties high on this world Come on and take a look And these, you know, certainly is kind of the 
uh, expansion of the, uh, I'm going to use the word cinematic, and, and certainly that, that ties into what he'd do, Mark Knopfler would do soon, but these are, these are big stories that he's telling in, the, in these songs. But I think the difference Jimmy Iovine makes is it's this difference between still seeing these songs as kind of pop music and, 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 and pumping them full of hooks and dynamics, and on the flip side, kind of seeing songs as like these, these soundscapes um, that, that actually work well as movie background and, and adding flavor to scenes and things like that. This is still very much a, a pop album, and certainly, you know, Brothers in Arms is as well. But when you look at these songs, man, they're just written so well. Expresso Love has a wonderful piano from Bitten on it, and a, and a real rough riff from, from, from Mark Knopfler, and it's just extremely interesting guitar texture through that song. Hand in hand, the way it's produced by Iovine, sounds like it could have been a Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers outtake. I mean, I can hear Ben Montench playing that that uh, that piano part. I can hear Mike Campbell playing some of the guitars on Hand in Hand. Um, and someone else can, can speak of Romeo and Juliet, which is also a fantastic song. This is my favorite moment, uh, my favorite album from the career of Dire Straits. I, as I said, if it weren't for Les Boys, I, I would judge this uh, Dire Straits' best album. As it is, I'm going to choose another one. Uh, but this will still make my top two at the end of the uh, uh, the day here. Uh, the, you know, Scott co- talked about those that first half of the album, which I agree is perfect. But what he didn't talk about is actually my favorite song on it, which is Skate Away, mm. which is a song that could, you know, if you look at the lyrics, it's about like a girl like roller skating, you know, this is a thing that people did in the uh, early 80s. Not children, mind you, but adults. We still have one adults. of those in Hillsdale. We got a roller rink here. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that roller skating, it feels so <laughs> early 80s. It feels yeah. like, you know, what is this, the Bay City Rollers? Lyrically, it could have been. Um, musically, it is the opposite of that. It is a brilliant and thoughtful guitar-based and keyboard-based tune that just is, you know, again, it makes – it is so far removed from – the generic stuff that you heard on those first two albums that it feels in some some ways like a different band Espresso Love is, you know, the, the one that opens the second half of the album is, is also the same way. That riff is the closest to, I think, a pure pop moment as you get on this album. It's, it's just a rock moment. That, that's, a, that's a really kind of healthily powerful introduction to that song. Really makes you stand up and pay attention. But Hand in Hand, Solid Rock, those are both great songs, too. Um, there is, uh, again, aside from the title, the, 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 the final track, which is this weird kind of 
and I don't know, is it a German gay panic thing going on? I don't know how to categorize Lip Boys. That's something that feels like it doesn't hit, it, it, it felt out of place at its time, and it certainly hasn't aged that well. But beyond that, everything else on this record is just fantastic. And, and I haven't mentioned, of course, Romeo and Juliet for the simple reason that I figure, you know, you know, why don't we give that one to Ellen to talk about? Because it would be unfair to take all the good songs away from her. Well, I mean, I hate to play the girl card here, and I I guess I can I can neutralize it by saying some of my other favorite songs are Heavy Fuel and Calling Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, you know, it's it's a just a wonderful song and for so many reasons. And the simplicity of the lyrics, it's not, you know, it seems like it's it's a lot more simple than songs like Iron Hand and Brothers in Arms, but it still has a lot of Shakespearean references. Um, you know, West Side Story, all these these little things he throws in there. Um, but it, it's kind of interesting, too, because Knopfler is a very private person. And you saw that because he didn't go to the Hall of Fame induction, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did he did include something about his own life. I mean, this story is actually about his own, own, own life. And um, mm-hmm. it was about his romance with Holly Vincent, who was the lead singer of a band called Holly and the Italians. And Knopfler felt whenever he dumped her that, uh, or well, she dumped him rather, that um, she had used him to elevate her own career and he was still in love with her. And so she's got this quote from her that says, what happened was that I had a scene with Mark Knopfler and it got to the point where he couldn't handle it and we split up. So there's a song, there's a line in the song that says, now you say, oh, Romeo, yeah, you know, I used to have a scene with him. Um, and this is just really, really personal um, for Knopfler. I mean, the rest of the album, there are some personal elements. Again, uh, Newcastle, Tyne, those are references in, in, in the setting uh, for Tunnel of Love and, and these great, um, summers he had English summers he had um, but on a more personal romantic level Romeo and Juliet sort of um, encapsulates an ex- or, or represents an experience that he had with a person who had some some fame not not nearly the degree that he did but the resentment he felt um, and that he you know that suddenly he wasn't good enough for her anymore um, and I just think he had a that was how he ex- dealt with it for himself and that's how he explained the situation Um and it just is remarkably personal for uh, for an individual who really kept his life out of out of the papers. If you would, you know, you'd say that. When you can fall for chains of silver, you can fall for chains of gold. You can fall for pretty strangers, and the promises they hold. You promised me everything. You promised me thick and thin, yeah. Now you just say, oh, Romeo, yeah. You know, I used to have a scene with him. When we made love, you used to cry Said I love you like the stars above I love you till I die There's a place for us You know in a movie song When you're gonna realize It was just that the time was wrong and the other interesting part about making movies is that despite the fact that you know Romeo and Juliet, as Ellen points out, is such a deeply personal song for Mark Knopfler, this really is where he lets that narrative impulse of his just start to bloom mm-hmm. full flower. All of these songs are, are, are stories. They're tales. Uh, you know, Romeo and Juliet just happens to be a tale that he wrote more or less about himself. Uh, but 
they're not you know they're not just love songs they're 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 songs that have have beginnings middles and endings they have a a literary quality to them that i think really fits the complexity of the music and i think is even more fitting for the next album which is uh love over gold which is their their follow-up to making movies um and i know that scott doesn't like this because uh, he told us in the pre-show stuff when we were doing our notes um scott explain why you're wrong and then i'll explain Wait, so, well why you're wrong <laughs> explain why i'm wrong well the, look this is I, this is a look when we look at things we like things we don't like jeff you know jeff is a prog rock fanatic and I'm a power pop guy. And so when you start getting into songs that are 14 and a half minutes long, I think yes. by definition, one of us is going to say, man, I find this interesting and appealing. And one of us is going to say, eh, can't, can't you make that like 250 or so and just get out? And so it's, it's a rough listen for me. Look, uh, Telegraph Road, which actually was written about a, a road just outside Detroit, um, is a great song with a five minute long guitar solo to close. Um, it's still a hard listen. Private Investigations is an interesting little uh, song to listen to because it is done in such a speak song, you know, speak uh, vocal kind of delivery from from Mark Knopfler. Um, as I said, th- there are some interesting pieces here. I think the the, the tail end of Private Investigations is John uh, Ilsley comes in with a very thumping bass line, which sounds like a heartbeat. And it quickens as the song begins to come to a crescendo toward the end. And I think it's a nice little play on the the topic of the song, which is a private investigator kind of ruminating on what his life has become, following people around and hardened by his experiences. And then the uh, kind of the excitement, the heartbeat racing toward the end. Uh, Industrial Disease was the single here. It's the most conventional uh, song on the album. And then I'll, there's only five songs here. I'll mention Love Over Gold, too. I think the second half of that song has this has this long instrumental part, which uh, includes oh, some classical piano flourishes, too. Look, this is this is Mark Knopfler uh, really stretching out in terms of his songwriting, really stretching out in terms of what he's allowing the band to put forward during these songs. Uh, it's for Jeff. It's just not really for me. This is Dire Straits' best album. <laughs> start right there. Yeah, I get it. There are five songs. Literally, the, the shortest song on Love Over Gold is a blink and you missed it six minutes long. All right. So this is not an album for people with short attention spans. I get it. You're not going to hear Walk of Life, although you actually kind of do hear a precursor to Walk of Life on this album. Um, so, yes, there is... Um, this is his his art rock move, yeah. his prog rock move. But I have to say that for anyone who ever sort of listened to progressive rock and you know or art rock and you know these, 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 the ideas of you know developing you know lengthier musical and instrumental conceits you know over a span of time, not trying to con- compact them to a three and a half minute long format, and also anyone who ever enjoyed say Bruce Springsteen. And thought to themselves, huh, I wonder if these two great flavors might go better together. Guess what? Love Over Gold is the album where Bruce Springsteen and progressive rock meet. 
I think the closest thing you'll ever find to anything else like this is is maybe some tracks on Arcade Fire's second album, Neon Bible, um, you know, like Windowsill or uh, No Cars Go or something like that. But even those have much more energy. They're much more aggressive and energetic. This is, as you know, as Scott says, Telegraph Road is 14 flipping minutes long. He <laughs> has a problem with that. I don't. I love the fact that it is just so quiet and it builds and you have these long guitar solos and these very lengthy ruminations on you know, how this is this is a song about you know sort of the the industrial life and death of a city or a road or a region you see it getting built up and then you see it falling back into into you know sort of you know disrepair all at the same time all as you travel down this road it's beautiful and then private investigations is pure i mean unless there's some deeper personal like vein running through it that i'm unaware of some really dark one i would imagine it's it's pure imagination he's he's writing this as like the theme song for um you know, uh, for a, a Dashiell Hammett story, for the Maltese Falcon or something like that. This is a private dick, a private investigator. You know, it, it's a mystery to me. The game commences for the usual fee plus expenses. And then, you know, he has that line where it says, you know, scarred for life, no compensation, private investigations. It's beautiful, beautiful, moody, moody stuff. And I, I think that the first half of that album, which is just those two songs, mm -hmm. is so good that people sometimes don't give enough credit to the second half of Love Over Gold, which begins with Industrial Disease, which is, I guess, the first, last, and only time Mark Knopfler exhibits a sense of humor on record. Um, you know, it's it's. Uh, Again, this is about the north of England. You know, Ellen talked earlier about you know sort of the death of the mines, the death of industrial England under the Thatcher years. You know, and so this is about like you know somebody who's uh you know you sort of get the general malaise because of the uh, the general decline of you know his 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 workplace and his job and his community. And, you know, he develops a, quote, industrial disease. And then, of course, he does that little doctor monologue in the middle of it. But what's most <laughs> notable for me is the use of that organ. Yeah, yeah. That organ is straight up a prefiguring of the poppier stuff that he would do on uh, Brothers in Arms, on Walk of Life and stuff like that. You know, the do, 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 do stuff. And you're like, whoa, well, that just appeared out of nowhere before you expected it to come. <laughs>
And the thing that you realize once you hear that song is that this album is actually not a guitar album. It's a keyboard album. Mark Knopfler plays, of course, lots of guitar all over this record because that that is, is his instrument. But the focus in terms of the arrangement and in terms of the way these songs are structured is all on the keyboards, which is funny because Roy Bitten isn't playing on this record anymore. And they, they brought in another guy. I can't remember his name, but it seems very obvious to me that, that, that Bitten was just such a shot in the arm mm-hmm. in terms of their arrangements on making movies that Knopfler was just like, okay, this is the way we're going to be doing this sound of music from now on. And of course, you see it all throughout the rest of Dire Straits' career. He becomes much more focused on this sort of you know, painting with keys and with sounds, creating in some weird ways some, some, some almost tone poem-like material. Um, I love that. And then the last thing I want to say is that I love the way that the title track, again, emphasizes the keyboards. Lover Gold fades away for almost two minutes on these weird – they sound like vibraphones, like somebody playing like, you know um, – you know, like a xylophone or a vibraphone, but mm-hmm, I'm sure mm-hmm. that they're actually just keyboards. But it's this very beautiful, quiet thing. Again, this is music that just insists on taking its time. Doesn't care if you've got somewhere to go or somewhere to be. It is definitely not for everyone. But every single song on it is well constructed, well written, well sung, and beautifully performed. The lyrics all hold up. This is the best album Dire Straits ever did. I mean, I guess for me, I, I mean, I disagree, obviously. Um, sure. I do. No, no, no. You know what? Uh, yeah, we're hanging up. Yeah. Uh, if you disagree, it's not. been nice to have you. <laughs> that's it. No, um, I, I think Private Investigations is a fantastic, I mean, just an absolutely fantastic song. The lyrics are fantastic. The the vocals are just haunting. Um, and again, it speaks to this this literary component of all of his works. I mean, this is clearly a reflection of all these mystery novels he probably read growing up and into his adulthood and sort of these characters that he's developed in his his mind. Michael checking out the reports Digging up the dirt You get to meet all sorts In this line of work Treachery and treason There's always an excuse for it when I find the reason Obviously, industrial disease is, is a reflection of, of his upbringing and the region he grew up in, in the political values he had. Um, I will say, you know, there's there's some some music I try to, as I'm sure most conservatives have to, separate, you know, the musician and the artist and the art from the politics. Um, and for some reason, um, Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits they don't irritate me when they talk about. Um, some of the left-leaning views that maybe a conservative, an American conservative in 2018 wouldn't agree with. Um, because it reminds I me of the way we used to talk uh, in our earlier episodes about Creedence Clearwater Revival, mm-hmm. where, you know, John Fogarty, you know, very, you know, a lot of left-wing, you know, all that populist yeah. politics, but it doesn't, it doesn't rub you the wrong way because it feels earned. It feels like authentic <laughs> and real, you know? It's not sanctimonious and it's not haughty. It's, exactly. It seems to be, it seems to be a telling of an environment and, and, and a sentiment. And you'll see this, you know, when we talk about on every street and, and iron hand is as 
one of my top five Dire Street songs. Um, you know, it's it's clear that there's an ideological bent, but I think it's it's not a reflection of this ivory tower, Oxford, Cambridge, how bad poor people have it, but instead this this genuinely empathetic point of view um, that's been built with living amongst these people and caring about these people um, that he's singing about and he's and he's playing for. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like gorillas in the mist. This isn't like a, an anthropological <laughs> expedition or anything like that. I'm not gawking at oh, look at all the pores. You know what I mean? It, there's. There seems to be a, a genuine nostalgia about the great industrial might of England, um, and and sort of what the Thatcher years meant for a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and, and the lyrics of that and of of that song are are fantastic too. No matter how you fall you know, on the issue, um, just everything, everything he writes, it's just, to me, it's just poetry. It's the main reason I think that it doesn't irritate me as much. If it was all rage against the machine sleep now in the fire, maybe (laughs) I would feel a little bit differently about it. Um, but I think Knopfler gets away with it because it's poetic and it's earnest. This is Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Ellen and Carmichael with us this week. Ellen, president of the Lafayette Company, also the communications director, chief spokesperson for presidential campaign, members of Congress, several political organizations. You also can find her writing occasionally at National Review and Forbes, and we're talking about dire straits. I want to make just a, a quick point before we get to Brothers at Arms, and that is, uh, Dire Straits was big in the U.S. and certainly gigantic with Brothers at Arms. But these these kind of in-between albums, which, you know, there's not the, the hit singles, the classic rock singles on either Making Movies or Love Over, Over Gold, they still sold a ton worldwide. These guys were massive. I mean, Love Over Gold sold, I think, 5 million copies in Europe, which is a huge number. And not a single song is under six right. <laughs> But that's that's just to say that you think of them as perhaps being, you know, brothers in arms catapulted them to worldwide success. Well, yeah, to a new stratosphere. But these guys... They were uh, already there. Already there. Already there. And, and I don't want to say playing with house money, but certainly uh, they, they had this giant track record of success and the ability to move units behind them. And now you get to Brothers at Arms. Uh, Let's also point out, by the way, that it's interesting to me that they managed to maintain that success, um, despite the fact that they changed a lot. Like, this is a band that, you know, if you started with that first Dire Straits album, you thought, okay, this is is nice blues-based chugal and boogie. Then all of a sudden, you know, by the time you're at Love Over Gold, (laughs) this <laughs> is like as i said it's prog rock essentially and with every step along the way they not only retained their audiences but they grew them which is really impressive given the fact that as you point out they weren't p- pumping out any pop hits or singles uh but then again that was about to change forever uh i will let you get back to your narrative scott <laughs> That's brothers at arms in 1985 30 million copies worldwide, nine times platinum in the U.S., nine weeks at number one here in the U.S., and, uh, and, and just sold a zillion copies, as, 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 I, as I mentioned. Taking, I think, some of the love over gold template, laying it over some of the making movies template, you still have that kind of atmospheric prog feel in some places, uh, overlaid with a little more, I'd call them pop accoutrements, perhaps. 
And I'm listening back to this album, and this is not one that I grew up with, I think, like like both of you did. Uh, I knew the hits. Uh, can't escape those hits. But I didn't grow up with some of these album tracks. And so, you know, when I first listened to it and now revisiting it this week, I do wonder if um, this is one of those albums that people buy and listen to the first three tracks. Those are the big singles. And then, you know, hit eject on the cassette player uh, back in the 80s uh, and maybe skip skipped through the rest of it. I don't know. And I only say that because it is really such an eclectic album. I think you yeah. make the case that this is the most varied sounding album, the most eclectic album that the band ever put out, and yet it was massively successful. Uh, I mean, even those three hits are very different. So far away, the lead-off track, Money for Nothing, of course, Giant with the help from Sting, and Walk of Life, very different songs. You go through the album, though, you get these jazzy flourishes with your latest trick. Um, you get this kind of very downbeat uh, acoustic-based track and Why Worry. It Latin flavors on Ride Across the River. Uh, and, and Jeff uh, mentioned Brothers in Arms, the title track earlier. Very different sounds on this album. And, uh, you know, it all works very well. It's not my favorite Dire Straits album, as I mentioned, Making Movies is, but it's still, you know, it's still very good. I want to spend a second on, on Walk of Life, which I think is somewhat considered disposable in some areas uh, just you know it's it's a pop song it's powered by that organ riff i put walk of life in this category of songs and, and the one that draws to mind most uh, well most prevalent is probably stand by rem it's not <laughs> their best song uh it, it, i don't know if it's classic in its construction but doggone it i love it and i'm not going to turn it off if i hear it and it always makes me happy Walk of Life with that simple rock and roll, you know, rockabilly type rhythm guitar, just insistent throughout the track. That long organ intro, the lyrics about, you know, a, a busking singer singing oldies, goldies, uh, hand me now, I walk It's not even just that. It's the video, too, yes, man. Do you yes. remember that music video with, with the all the baseball loopers. highlights? You yeah. know, like... You know, the guy's like jumping over the, the outfield fence to catch home run balls. Juggling the football before the catch, running into the goalposts. There, there is something that I think, yes, draws those two together also in my mind to make it so memorable. I just, I mean, I, I just love Walk of Life. Um, and I'm never going to turn it off if it comes on the radio. And it always puts a smile on my face, just like Stan. I will never turn off, turn off Stan. It always makes me happy. It's not quite representative of, of R.E.M., but I still love it. Come, Johnny, come tell you the story. Hand me now my walking shoes. Become Johnny with a power and the glory. Black beat, the talking blues. He got the action, he got the motion. And a boy can play. You know, money for nothing. Uh, you know, the 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 radio edit. You know, the, the shorter version that is played uh, that, that perhaps people hear all the time takes away some of the power of this track. Oh yeah, it is really that that beginning whatever it is two minutes two and a half minutes with Sting and that that those haunting vocals as as, uh, as Jeff pointed out. I want my MTV. That that scared me as a kid, man. <laughs> and seriously, like like that that build up, you know, with, with, that you know, with the guitar was going like, yes. Yeah, pow, and then 
you know, the, it breaks into that really dryly mic'd, you know, that actually frightened me as a kid. Like, that was too stressful for my <laughs> five year old ears. It was like, whoa, that's an emotional roller coaster right there. But yeah, man, that was deeply effective music. Yeah, and it just, you know, that, that beginning build, which again is lost on the radio edit, is so well done. And so it, it just, bu- everything builds and builds and it gets louder and louder and louder and it just, and then cuts out into that guitar riff from Knopfler, which apparently he meant to sound like Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. That's the sound he was going for. Pretty well done. Yeah, um, it does. It sounds exactly like ZZ Top. Pretty, he nailed it. Pretty <laughs> really well done. And, and that song, of course, with the iconic, also an iconic video uh, on MTV, which got tons of play, uh, that's the one that launched them in the stratosphere. Again, I think the, the other tracks uh, show off some of the variety and some of the songwriting skills of Knopfler. I do like uh, Ride Across the River quite a bit. One World's a pleasant kind of generic rocker in, in my mind. Uh, but so much of this album is built on those first three songs, those first three singles. Uh, it's it's a great album and and, and, and very, uh, very well very well done and sold so well. They, they sold 7.1 million tickets out of tour after this album. People like Dire Straits and willing to, they were willing to pay to see them. Like we don't really need to sell you on the virtues of Brothers in Arms. It, it's an album that's like kind of sells itself. It's like saying, "Yeah, you know, you like ice cream. Here's some ice cream." <laughs> but, but anyways, Ellen, what are your thoughts? Well, for I, I, I think that for me, one of the the biggest memories I have of listening to Dire Straits as a child, in addition to Walk of Life and South Bend again, was. Uh, listening to Money for Nothing with my dad. And the backstory of that song, you know, it gets kind of a negative rap now because they say they use a gay slur that we no longer use in 2018 and rightfully so. Um, but the song was just based on an overheard conversation mm-hmm. um, in an electronics store in New York City. He heard a delivery man kind of rambling on about how easy rock stars have it and how they get paid money for nothing. And so Knopfler went behind the counter and asked if he could have a piece of paper and a pencil and just just transcribed exactly what that guy said. My, my yeah, I, don't, I don't have a problem with the lyrics to that song because it's just clearly him writing in a in a persona. Yeah. Because remember, Mark Knopfler himself is a world famous and highly successful rock star. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have to look like or live like one, and that's I think that's kind of the point. I mean, in a lot of other songs like Heavy Fuel and and. and it, he really sort of is, is mocking this business. I mean, obviously he's benefiting from it, but I think one time he said he doesn't care about being the most famous guitar player in the world. He just wants to be the best. Um, I, I think that I think he was maybe laughing at the guy a little bit, but also agreeing with him. Um, and the song is just, it's iconic. I mean, it's probably one of the three songs that Dire Straits is most associated with with and in part because of the music video i mean from a marketing strategy which doesn't really come into play for much of anything dire straits has done or martin uffler has done in his career they knew that mtv had been on for a couple of years and it was still sort of a risky bet to incorporate mtv into a song like that because nobody knew really how successful and, and how much it would endure the network would endure but then the network glommed on to the song because it was a great promotion for them i remember even in my, you know, maybe in the mid '90s, when I sort of became a little bit more familiar with MTV, they were still using that blockhead animation mm-hmm, to right. do TV promotional videos, um, and so it was just, it was just a really important song for the band commercially. Um, even though I, I doubt Mark Knopfler would say it's, it's a very important song to him personally. I mean, the Sting, Sting is one of my other favorite um, musicians, and, and he just adds so much to the song. 
Brothers in Arms, which we haven't really talked about the song yet, um, but the history on that one's interesting too because it's it's so much associated even in the Gulf War and and recent um, in Afghanistan and Iraq. A lot of people in the military identify with this song a lot. But the the, the history on that too is that um, his father was remarking with the with the conflict in the Falklands that the Argentinians and the Soviets were on the same side in his mind the fascists and the socialists and he said how strange is it that these are brothers in arms um, and that struck Knopfler and so he actually kind of adapted it um, to to his own countrymen the English and it just become a very important song to a lot of people and his stirs in people really strong emotions, especially folks who either have relatives in the military or who have served or are currently serving um, it, it's just it's really important to a lot of people and maybe that probably surprised him too <laughs> given the context of how it was created but even you know just the the image of the mist covered mountains i mean that comes from an old scottish an old scottish folk song there's just so many descriptive elements to this entire album and especially on the brothers in arms song um that have just meant a great deal to a lot of people brothers in arms is you know, again, it, it's hard for me to say this about an album that, again, as I said at the beginning of the show, it's like, man, so much to me as a child. But I will say it's probably a little bit overrated, you know, even though, yeah, those first three songs are all super famous. And how can you object to them? You know, so far away, of course, is great money for nothing. By the way, am, am I the only person? I'm surely I'm not. When I did that video for money for nothing, that's the honeymooners, right? That 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 that's Ralph Cramden yes. and, and and Norton. I think so. You know, yeah. Okay, okay. I, and it's one of these things that, like, I, when I got a little bit older, I'm, of course, I saw it when I was like five years old, six years old, <laughs> and then I saw it again when I was eleven and twelve, and I was like, oh wait, I get it now. I get it now. I've ne- as I said earlier, I, I, I've never had an objection to a, you know the use of the F word, not the four letter one, but the six letter one uh, on that song because Knopfler is clearly writing in, in in a persona. He's writing in a voice. He's writing as the guy behind the counter at the electronics store who works in like Staten Island or something it, like that. It, it's so eff- it's so effective, Jeff. My favorite part is is the uh, uh, <laughs> that ain't working. I mean, the, the pa- picture he paints. Of this, you know, the guy watching the TV. Ah, I go, what's that? That ain't working. It's perfect. It's perfect. He's like, he's literally commenting on it as it plays. I go, that's good. That that yeah. that, that ain't working. <laughs> oh, that, oh, look at that that woman sticking in the camera around. Yeah, we could have some fun. These were pointed to MTV, and so the guy was saying he had just come in from a big delivery where he had been manual labor, and he's seeing on TV all these music videos and saying, "What I'm doing is real work. Those people are just losers." <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly right. I mean, and uh, the thing about Brothers in Arms is, as Scott pointed out, so does anybody remember the second half of this album? Well, I remember the second half of this album. And there are songs on it that I don't think are as good. Like I listened to Right Across the River, and I and you know you listen to the 
opening introduction to that and you think to yourself like you know what the hell am i listening to listening wind by talking heads or something like that <laughs> because it has the, it feels literally like something off of remain in light and then it goes into something a little bit more sort of standard but I, it doesn't work for me i think the most underrated song on the second half of brothers in arms is the man's too strong um which is uh sort of a much more stripped down essentially kind of an acoustic blues really works it's a really tough lyric uh but i really want to spend the most time talking about brothers in arms i talked about it at the beginning of this show i want to talk about it here because as ellen said that song is powerful and maybe indeed it took on a power that 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 Knopfler himself didn't intend when he wrote it but i've got to think he did because you know those lyrics you know through the fields of destruction the baptisms of fire I've witnessed your suffering as the battle raged higher. Beautiful lyric. Very, it's, it's a song that is both huge and enormous in its ambition, and yet it's very quiet and it's very small. There's no bombast at all. Yeah. And throughout it, there is, I will say this right now, Mark Knopfler, a man who is remembered and, and praised and singled out uh, for – if anything, primarily it is for his guitar, mm -hmm. his guitar playing, his guitar tone. This one song is the greatest guitar work that Mark Knopfler ever did. When I listen to that final verse, you know, the sun's gone to hell, the moon's riding high, let me bid you farewell. And I hear the guitar that he's playing in the background. And it is just so lyrical. It is, a, it is a second voice. It is like there are two lead singers, except that one of the singers uh, is the guitar and it's not Knopfler's vocals. It is just the most beautiful and most moving statement that they ever made. Of course, it's the best way to end the album. And it's why brothers in arms. Isn't just those first three songs, the first half of the record. Now the sun's gone to hell. second half of the record there's there's stuff on there that works there's some that doesn't work but it ends with what i think may be their greatest song ever i think that's what brothers in arms is after uh brothers at arms a break and a huge tour huge tour then uh a break mark knopfler did some movie work the princess bride uh soundtrack scored by mark knopfler but they'd come back for one final album as a band, Dire Straits, uh, and that's from 1991 on every street. And again, when you look at worldwide sales, I don't know how many people here in the U.S. remember it all that fondly. Sold 15 million copies worldwide. They still could sell 
uh, sell music around the world. Sold 15 million copies and nobody remembers a thing about it. Isn't and, that strange? Yeah, except for one song, which actually I'm going to toss it to, uh, to Ellen because she's mentioned this song a few times and I love it too. He- Heavy Fuel is one of the singles. That's yeah. a great song. Ellen, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Heavy Fuel is a sort of um, Mark Knopfler's final statement uh, about how much he... Uh, he, he tends to mock the music industry and the lyrics are just, I know Jeff said that he doesn't have a ton of humor, but the lyrics and heavy feel are really, really funny. And yeah, it's good. I don't care if my liver is hanged by a thread. Don't care if my doctor says I ought to be dead, but if my ugly big car won't climb this hill, I'll write a suicide note on a hundred dollar bill. I mean, it's, it's, it's sharp and it's funny and it's smart. And I just think that was just his way of sort of saying he was over, <laughs> over it. songs on this album. I, mean, I, I know On Every Street was sort of panned uh, critically because it it was so different from so many albums previously. Um, but it's actually probably my favorite um, just for a variety of reasons. Iron Hand is a song that is just, and I've mentioned it several times, to me um, it's probably top three best Dire Straits songs. It's just so beautiful and so poetic. Um Calling Elvis is funny and smart too. And On Every Street is a wonderful song. The Bug is a great song. It's another, another funny song. I mean, this is like Walk of Life. The Bug and Walk of Life sort of go hand in hand in the sense that it's kind of a, speaking to like a working class, middle class person. You know, sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the, sometimes you're the bug, sometimes you're the Louisville slugger, sometimes you're the ball. I mean, it really, these are kind of like every man's songs. And, um, and to me, they're some of the, the, the more fun ones. And, and, and granted, there's, you know, Iron Hand's a serious song, um, you know, and on every street has has its, you know, somber tone to it at parts. Um, but there are some fun songs like Calling Elvis the Bug, Heavy Fuel, um, that are just, that's just really fond memories for me with my parents and really a big part of my childhood. I mean, as somebody from Louisiana, Planet of New Orleans, it's just it's got some of these kind of strange contemporary jazz notes to it, but the the lyrics are so smart and just so reflect the landscape I grew up with in, in this fantastic city that's now celebrating its 300th birthday. Um, so much history, so much art, so much culture, so much, so many great stories of this city that has shaped so many people. And here's a guy who grew up in Northeast, Northeast England who could, encapsulate that who could tell that story again that goes back to my original point of his um his sense of place his way even he mentions like going into someone's court courtyard i mean those are that's a famous the courtyards and the french quarter are these famous architectural features that are unique to the city of new orleans the magnolia smell you know the the street names you know toulouse i mean these are these are really important features of the city that i live in and somebody from northeast england could tell this 
almost Storyville type story about the city. And I think that's what makes Mark Knopfler such a wonderful artist and also on every street, just a great album. I have no idea why this album got panned uh, and it, and it, it is sort of treated as a footnote in Dire Straits the history and in the discography. I, I guess the reason has to be because it was six years after Brothers in Arms. I mean, talk about a long layoff. People had just moved on since then. This is released in September of 1991. What else was released in September of 1991? Nevermind by Nirvana. I mean, this is the moment where popular music moved on from what we perceive as the 80s into the grunge revolution. So, the, the whole Mark Knopfler style, even in its heyday, was something that was sort of resolutely out of step with the popular trends. But, you know, compare it to Jeremy and Evenflow or uh, <laughs> Smells Like Teen Spirit and Come As You Are, you know, it's even more wildly out of place. It, this aspirational. Isn't- it's too, it's too, it's a combination of aspirational nostalgia. There's not too much that Mark Knopfler's angry about. You know, and it's at a time where people were pretty, pretty angry and pretty uncomfortable. And here's somebody who's singing about the beauty of a night in the French Quarter. I mean, it's it's Mm. sort of you're right. It it is sort of out of place at that time. And it's pretty adult and pretty processed for for the emotions that people who are making music were sharing with the world at that time. But I don't. I don't dislike this album at all. I, I think it's certainly better than their first two albums. I, I particularly I like Calling Elvis. I think that's a great song. Um, and on, on every street, the title track is great. The bug, as you mentioned, you know, is sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of really good songs on this album. It's just, uh, to my mind, a simple f- matter of the trends and the styles having passed on from what Mark Knopfler was willing to do, which I think is exactly why he just said, yeah, all right, I'm done. You know, we're, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do my own thing now and work as a solo artist from this point on, but it's a good record. Scott. Yeah. Speaking of reviews, it just brothers at arms was savage by the UK press. They hated it. Um, and that didn't <laughs> stop uh, dire straits. So, uh, the reviews, uh, contemporaneously also were very harsh on every for on every street i think it's aged pretty well um you know the, the production is not dated very much look it is as i think ellen mentioned a very laid-back adult album i mean it's almost you know to the point of, of being you know what we call these days dad rock right um but the songs are are are, are quality uh ellen covered heavy fuel which is just a fun rocking song the lyrics are fantastic um when it comes to you just a a great example of the fine song craft nashville-esque feel to it as well calling elvis very good um i want to spend just a second on the the title track on every street which i think is the second song on the album this is i think one of the finest moments in, in dire straits career um and i think the highlight along with heavy fuel of on every street it's just an exquisite track. It's a beautiful track. It starts with piano and Knopfler's voice. Uh, you just get a couple of verses there, which is which is intertwined with this uh, saxophone melody. And then it kicks into a more upbeat uh, pace for the final portion of the song. You hear yeah. some of Knopfler's uh, finger-picking guitar, and that guitar line he's playing is, a, is, a, is an echo of that previous saxophone line we heard in the song. And the full band comes in. It's a wonderful close to the song. And uh, it's not, you know, I think back to, like, your latest trick from Brothers at Arms. 
that's uh, that that has a very you know '80s soft rock kind of song to uh, kind of sound to it. On every street, it's just more of a, a beautiful, lush song that really kicks uh, once you get deeper into it. I, I think it's a wonderfully done song, wonderful song construction, and, and, and uh, one of the two highlights of On Every Street for sure. that album that's it that's the band right uh they break up in uh i think made official in 1995 someone puts out a press release that says dire straits is done but they're not really done are they because mark Knopfler himself had a a sort of a solo career that was you know it started earlier when he was doing soundtrack work yep and then of course it continued on after this and i know ellen for one has you know quite a few songs that, that 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 she's really fond of from this era this is an era that i'm not familiar with to be honest so i'm gonna do the decent thing and lay out here but i i do want to make sure that that we get to talk about this stuff too yeah i mean for for me mark Knopfler's solo work is as impressive and perhaps even more meaningful you know this the songs that i was listening to with my dad when i was a little girl riding in the car with you know, with them are now the solo songs you know from from mark Knopfler. um and they've just made a tremendous impact on my life. It's just become a type of music that I've really enjoyed. And lyrically, I think it's even more sophisticated than what he put out with Dire Straits. And I was thinking sort of about just how impressive his solo career was. And I kind of wrote a quick list of the people he's worked with. Emmylou Harris um, with All the Road Running, which is a just fantastic, fantastic work. And I love Emmylou Harris. Mm-hmm. Eric Clapton, Van Morrison, Chet Atkins, James Taylor. He wrote Private Dancer for Tina Turner, Bob yeah. Dylan. The list goes on and on of people that he's worked with, whether he's written songs for them, produced songs for them, or um, are done duets with him, uh, with them. Um, and I think some of, as I said, some of the more pro, uh, pro poetic work that he's done, and I know our friend Charlie Cook probably would agree with me, um, is in his, his solo work, and particularly the song called Lights of Tower Mina, which is sort of modeled after um, Dylan, who he has close relationship with. And it's, it's just about a guy reflecting upon a, a love he once had um, in, in Italy and just the beautiful lyrics are just about the t- all the nostalgia he had and when they used to walk along the shore and now he, how much he thinks of her when he drinks wine. It's just, again, it might be the dad rock stuff, but the, the lyrics are just absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. He has a song with Van Morrison called The Last Laugh, which is one of my dad's favorite songs and one of mine too. And it's just a sweet, positive song and, and just both of their voices sound so lovely together. Um, there's a song, What It Is, which evokes these this unbelievable imagery of the north of England and of Scotland and sort of working class people. High on the parapet of Scottish piper stands on the wall. High on the wind, the highland runs me to the road. Something from the past just comes and stares into my soul 
Caledonia blue Cold on a toe God knows what I do with you That's what it is That's what it is There's some really great tunes, Postcards from Paraguay, which has this sort of Latin American feel to the way that he picks on this song about a guy who decides he's just going to leave everything in his corporate life and all the mess he's created with his life behind and move to South uh, South America and never contact anyone again. Um, You know, there's so much variation in all the and the different the different topics and different places he sings about sailing to Philadelphia with James Taylor uh, is probably one of Charlie's favorites. I know one of mine, too. I mean, this song was written about the two guys that drew the Mason Dixon line. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's how would this guy have any experience writing about this other than to read a lot about it? And just, again, you're getting images of Northern England and people coming to the United States and creating a different life. And um, another famous song of his that I would highly recommend is called Boom Like That, which is actually about Ray Kroc, the guy who... Um, is the disputed founder of McDonald's. And um, the song ended up being the inspiration for the movie, the founder, um, the folks who created the movie said so. Um, And he just kind of read the guy's biography and thought what kind of a ruthless jerk slash genius and wrote this kind of funny, um, nostalgic song about how McDonald's used to be and how this guy made some history by creating these chains of restaurants and um you know he's just so influential to think that this guy who you know produced sultan's a swing is now writing the princess bride soundtrack and you know inspiring movies that are made in 2017 and then i get it wham as clear as day my pulse begins to hammer and i hear a voice say these boys have got this down Ought to be one of these in every town These boys have got the touch It's clean as a whistle and it don't cost much Wham, bam, you don't wait long Shake, fries, how do you go? How about that friendly name? Heck, every little thing ought to stay the same Oh, my name's not Croc, that's Croc with K Like Crocodile, but not spelt that way now it's doggy dog, ready, ready. Doggy dog, ready, ready. Oh, it's doggy dog, ready, ready. Clock style, boom like that. I mean, they even used Romeo and Juliet on I Tanya. I mean, this guy is still <laughs> as important today. Um, as he was in the height of the MTV music on television years. And um, I think his solo work is really worth people giving it, giving it a chance because there's some pretty beautiful stuff there, some unique sounds, like I said, postcards from Paraguay, this Latin sound, all the road running with Emilio Harris, these country folk um, 
vibes, the work he did with Chet Atkins. I mean, the late Chet Atkins. I mean, there's just there's just some really incredible stuff. And everybody wants to work with him because he's a good songwriter and he's a fantastic guitarist. And I'll, I'll just mention really quickly, I've not followed Knopfler's solo career anywhere near as closely as Ellen has. But the one album that I return to is uh, Sailing to Philadelphia, which is the second uh, proper solo album after Dire Straits broke up, and Ella mentioned what it is, which is an excellent song, and I'll also point you to one later in the album called Silvertown Blues, which is done with uh, Glenn Tilbrook and Chris Difford from from Squeeze. Uh, that's a really excellent Ooh, track you just got well. my attention. See? See, Jeff's going to go check out some solo stuff tonight, too. <laughs> Any mention of Squeeze, and I'm on board. Yeah. There we go, the uh, uh, the Political Beats look at uh, Dire Straits, and we come to the portion of the program where uh, your esteemed hosts will recommend to you two albums that you really should own and five key songs that you really should hear from Dire Straits. And as always, we start with our guest for the program. That is Ellen Carmichael. Find her at Ellen Carmichael on Twitter. Ellen, the floor is yours for your albums and songs from Dire Straits. Okay, so for albums, I would say Brothers in Arms and On Every Street, which, again, I know makes me sort of unusual by the critic standards because (laughs) those are both acclaimed and panned albums. Um, But just because of the songs and what they meant to me in my life and then sort of the style, um, those would be the two I would go with. Hey, the critics can go to hell, Ellen. You you give me (laughs) one. I'm on political beats. I'm a critic now. Romeo and Juliet. So when I wrote my top five songs, I want to say that I purposefully did not consider Brothers in Arms, Money for Nothing, or Sultans of Swim, because I figured those three are the most um, most famous songs for Dire Straits that would probably be on your list. So I said Romeo and Juliet, Iron Hand, and I mentioned the song a lot. And I just wanted to read. So Iron Hand, the reason why I like it so much is, again, the historical component. Um, but it refers to this violent altercation between police and picketers during the 1984-1985 UK minor strike. Um, Now, most historians will probably agree at this point that the police brutality was in self-defense, but a lot of others, especially those on the left side of things politically, would say that it was an excessive use of force meant to kind of keep down um, industrial workers. Um, There are a lot of people seriously injured in this altercation. And so one historian had described the scene as almost medieval and its choreography at various stages, a siege, a battle, a chase, a rout, and finally a brutal example of legalized state violence. And Knopfler, who was a, you know, a, a, a musical historian, if you will, he kind of felt that the scene of the police on horseback plowing through the crowd was something out of medieval times. And so the song Iron Hand is kind of thought to be a reference to Iron Thatcher's Iron Lady. Um, and the lyrics are just absolutely beautiful. He says, Oh, the iron will and the iron hand in England's green and pleasant land. No music for the shameful scene. That night, they say, it had even shocked the queen. Well, alas, we've seen it all before. Knights in armor, days of yore. The same old fears and the same old crimes. We haven't changed since ancient times. Um, To have that song come out in 1991, to be so so poetic, and I know that's a word I've used a lot, but to be so poetic, I I just think it was an alternative way to look at uh, current events compared to what else was out there and I just think it makes it such a special song Oh the iron will and the iron hand In England's green pleasant land No music for the shameful scene That night they say 
down to the waterline from the dire straits album like i said it's a highly underappreciated tune with beautiful guitar work and vivid imagery and it gives you this nice romantic vibe without being raunchy about it and i think that's sort of something that rock and roll has had a hard time resisting over the years um making something that's racy and sexy be those things without being explicit um on every street from the album on every street. I just think it's a pretty song, especially Scott said towards the end, the musical arrangement at the end is just so powerful and it just keeps you engaged in the song long after the lyrics are over. And then I ended with heavy fuel just because I think it's just a really funny and clever song. And to me, it reflects Knopfler perfectly because here's a guy who's not conventionally attractive, who's not interested in the rock and roll lifestyle who really just cared about making music. And I think that's sort of reflective across his career. He cared about learning more about music and learning from other musicians and heavy fuel kind of made fun of the glam rock, the people that were in it for the girls and the drugs and the excess. And here's a guy who just genuinely likes music and he's using his talent to make fun of others who might put it second. All right, for uh, my two albums, Making Movies is uh, my favorite album that Dire Straits did. That's certainly one of the two. Jimmy Iovine's production just made the absolute best of what the band brought to the table at that time. And the other album, I I, I really, I think it's going to be the first one, uh, the self-titled debut. Uh, Jeff's going to tell me I'm wrong in in 60 seconds or so, but um, that's my second favorite. That's the one I go back to most often, um, not the least because it, it contains Sultans of Swing, which is fantastic, down to the waterline. I really like hearing that that clean production sound and and and, and uh, Mark Knopfler's guitar really coming through on a great number of the songs on the uh, the debut album. Wild West End's a great one too. So Dire Straits and uh, Making Movies, my songs. Uh, Ellen uh, did away with some of the more well known ones. I, I added some of the more well known ones only because I think it's hard to tell the story without without some of those songs. Sultans of Swing from the first one. Almost everyone has heard it, but just go back and listen to the, the solo one more time, okay? Uh, Lady Writer from uh, Communique, which is uh, the high point of that album. I just love Lady Writer, which is exactly three minutes and 30 seconds long. Tunnel of Love from Making Movies. The first track on Making Movies is eight minutes long. It earns every second of it. There's a wonderful call and response about midway through between the guitar of Mark Knopfler and the drums of, uh, of, uh, uh, I'm going to lose the drummer's name, but between the guitar and drums on that track in, in the middle of it, it's just fantastic. I love Tunnel of Love, very muscular song. Uh, Walk of Life from uh, Brothers at Arms is on the list for reasons I explained earlier, and uh, Ellen uh, put it on her list. I just talked about it a few minutes ago on every street from On Every Street. It's just a beautiful song. I think really one of the best 
that Mark Knopfler wrote in one of the best band performances as well, especially toward the latter stage of Dire Straits' career. There's mine. Jeff, over to you. All right. Well, mine are... um, I'm surprised to find myself being so iconoclastic, although I don't know how iconoclastic. I really am by saying that Making Movies is one of my two favorite Dire Straits albums um, for all the reasons that we've gone into already. And then the other one is Love Over Gold, where Scott is wrong and I am right. (laughs) That Dire Straits, as Bruce Springsteen-like prog rock, is the best possible Dire Straits. I love that album. I love the weirdness of it. I love its unapologetic uh, uh, desire to force you to sit and pay attention to what it has to say and the way it develops its melodies and its ideas out so slowly and so patiently and so painstakingly. For my five songs, uh, the first one, I'm yeah, I'm not going to surprise anyone by saying it's got to be Sultan's a Swing because this is the song that put them on the map. It's the song that defined them. It's the song that defined Mark Knopfler's guitar guitar style. Uh, It's the song that every time, as Scott said, it comes on the radio, you just want to keep on listening. You want to keep listening until you get to that guitar solo, and it feels great. Uh, The one I had to choose from making movies, uh, because it's uh, so hard to choose any one in particular, but I chose Expresso Love. Uh, it's the first song on side two. It's the closest that album gets to a, sort of a rock or kind of a pop move, uh, especially in its opening introduction. I think it's a great, great song. And I, I think it is probably the best song on that album. But even if it isn't the best, in some ways, it, it to me feels like the most representative. Third song is Industrial Disease, which is in a way, almost like a pick from Brothers in Arms as well, because Industrial Z's sounds like Walk of Life. It introduces those those elements, particularly with the organ, uh, that you would end up hearing later on in their career. And it's a very funny song. It's also a very, again, another a great storytelling and imaginative song about an imaginary disease that afflicts the working north of England. Um, Brothers in Arms, the last song from the title album brothers in arms again i've already talked about how this is a song that affected my father when i was a child so it affected me i think it's the best guitar work that mark knopfler ever put onto a record and that is indeed saying something serious given that this is a man who is celebrated above all for the ability uh that he has to evoke emotions with his guitars and then the last song i will choose uh is lover gold which is the uh title track for Lover Gold. Again, taking two songs from this album. I like everything about this song, but I think what I appreciate the most about it is how it it shifts the focus from guitars to keyboards, and in particularly how it ends with that beautiful haunting, I guess, vibraphone, I guess, synth keyboard. I'm not sure what it is. The playout, the, the keyboard playout on Lover Gold is one of my two favorite moments in the entire history of Dire Straits and it is so far removed from what Mark Knopfler you know announced as his original concept for this band sort of like a uh, a traditional kind of a blues rock band uh, that it represents the triumph of his artistic ambitions over his own basic instincts I think it's a real highlight of their career
And there we go. The Political Beats look at dire straits with a little focus on Mark Knopfler's solo career. We uh, thank our guest for the program, Ellen Carmichael. You can find her on Twitter, at Ellen Carmichael, President Lafayette Company, Communications Director for Presidential Campaign, members of Congress, political organizations. You can also read her work occasionally over at National Review and at Forbes. Ellen, thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast, Political Beats. Thank y'all. Appreciate it. Jeff, nice job. I would say we'll do it again next week, but in fact, we will not be doing it again next week because next week we will be taking the week off. Uh, I'm going to be traveling on a baby moon with my wife. Well, have fun. We'll try yes. to maybe do some sort of a Twitter uh, um, thread to, to sort of yeah, fill, yeah. Fill I could probably chime in from the hotel room or something <laughs> like that, right? Yes, wives love that when you're on Twitter while you're on vacation. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. That, that discussion has come up many times. <laughs> uh, find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD, and uh, my name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Remember, subscribe to our feed. New episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in. Or right there at nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews as well. And find us on Twitter at political underscore beats, at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.